Good evening, everybody, and welcome once again to another edition of Cocaine Willie. This week, we have a fantastic guest lined up for you in Parker Fleming, who is better known to probably most of you as Stats of War on Twitter, and he's the host of the Purple Theory podcast covering all things TCU football. Before we jump in, I do want to give a shout out to our good friend, Nick the Coffee Fiend, and his new coffee company, Standard Issue Coffee Co. This is not an ad, but I got two hours of sleep last night, and I'm letting you all know that I wouldn't be awake right now without two espresso shots that I made this afternoon with his beans, which are glorious magic beans. So shout out to Nick and Standard Issue for keeping me awake. And his website is now live if you need your own coffee fix. And I think that's at standardissuecoffeeco.com. Also shout out to the Coke fiends out there. Y'all have been spreading the word and putting Cocaine Willie out there. And we've officially reached our highest episode download numbers yet, uh, especially with that hoops preview from Flando. So for that, we are all forever thankful. As always, I am joined by my trusty co-host, Fireball Matt and the good chef. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Incredible, my friend. Incredible. How are you, Matt? You know what? I'm ready for the cats. Let's go. Excited to uh, talk cats football and uh, TCU, which honestly, one of the biggest games we've seen this program play in, I would say, a good handful of years. Right, Mr. Trollsby? Well, I'd say at least since 2014. I would say. Yeah, that's a long time ago. I would say so. Yeah, 2014 is a good. that's a good year because that was what the year that Baylor and TCU were both one number one A and one B in the conference, if I remember right. And K State was right down the stretch too, like battling, almost getting them in there. But you know, we came up short. Baylor really good. TCU was really good that year. Well, yeah, that Baylor game, the last game in the season in 2014, I'm pretty sure we beat Baylor. We would have split the Big Twelve with TCU, maybe. That's a long time ago. I'm getting a little senile after you turn. Well, fortunately for us, we have someone who is very familiar with uh, with that 2014 season and all sorts of TCU football that's happened between now and then and, and probably well before that as well. Parker, we've got you on here at Stats of War. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Long day, a couple, you know, midweek here doing all the previews and everything, but uh, I've cracked open a beer here. We just finished the Purple Theory podcast with uh, Grant talking about the TCU side of things, and I'm excited to get here and uh, chop it up about the cats with y'all. You don't mind me asking, what beer are you sipping on today? Um, This is one uh, from Big Sky Brewing out in Montana. They distribute pretty widely, which is interesting. So they do a winter IPA. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm drinking that this evening. Very nice. I've got, uh, I've got the great divide pumpkin ale here myself. Uh, definitely, definitely one of the pumpkin boys along with, uh, Scott for Bosco's boys. Dude, love, love a good pumpkin. Love a good pumpkin ale. Uh, we actually just ordered a, uh, this sounds crazy, but, uh, my wife got served an ad for a non-alcoholic pumpkin stout. And we were like, dude, honestly, We'll try it. We'll see what happens. So we ordered a six pack of that online today. And well, I guess I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing how that turns out. It sounds like you haven't gotten it yet. Um, but awesome. Well, we are, we are all fair, very familiar with your work here on, uh, on cocaine Willie, but 
Uh, Purple Theory is probably my favorite non-K-State team podcast that's out there uh, within the Big 12, with the exception of probably the 10-12 network as well. They, they always put out good stuff. Um, and you're also an analyst for BetUS. So you're a busy guy. We very much appreciate having you. Uh, give us some of your time this week and helping us preview the, the matchup this weekend. And uh, we also loved having Keegan Renault on, who I know your your buddies with or, or uh, somehow associated with Keegan. And, and we had him on for the OU preview, which was good to take a little bit more of a data-driven approach. Uh, so we're looking forward to, to having you on here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Keegan's, Keegan's my boy. No, for sure. Um, yeah, and, and happy to chat with you guys. You know, I love I, I, uh, Bosco boys and kind of the community and then gotten through them, have gotten to know some K-State folks and certainly love to talk football and everything. So happy to be here for sure. Awesome. Well, well, maybe real quick, just tell us a little bit more about yourself, what you do and in your relationship with TCU and TCU football. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just an alum. I'm a nobody. Uh, when it comes to TCU football, my main role in the last three years uh, was um, internet antagonist of Gary Patterson. Uh, he and I had some late night sessions where we argued explicitly and every so often he would call me on the phone and yell at me. <laughs> about God knows what. So um, definitely, you know, as I've gotten more involved in kind of the football space, uh, have uh, have gotten a little more involved with teams and with coaches and talking. And so that's been fun. But just a TCU alum, excuse me, a TCU alum, a TCU fan, and um, mostly started getting into football analytics like most of us did just because I was bored, right? Like I was doing these math classes in grad school and it was very abstract and I didn't know how to um, – I didn't really know what I wanted to do applied to with that. And I knew this dinosaur of like a statistical program called Stata. And I wanted to learn R, which is newer and more flexible and open source and all that. So I um, just kind of started putting, you know, pen on paper and making a little model, talking about games. I, I, I started out, my, my friend Jamie Plunkett ran Frogs of War. He's at Frogs Today now. Um, for TCU and saw him at a tailgate and he was like, dude, I love how you're talking about football come right for me. And so I started, you know, writing for him and basically was just pulling Bill Conley's information and Brian Fremo um, to, you know, do a statistical breakdown and write and do all this. And then kind of got into making my own numbers and creating my own data. And from there um, have just, you know, been, been very fortunate to have opportunities to continue to talk about football and, ask and answer interesting questions about football and really just, you know, create tools and graphs that I think are useful and interesting about, about the game. Well, Parker, we're lucky to definitely have you on today. And, you know, I do have a little bit of a soft spot for TCU after they, you know, joined the big 12. And I mean, it is sometimes nice to have a, another purple school um, in the conference TCU had a lot going on this past offseason. Sonny Dykes coming in as a head coach, picked up some good transfers, um, had a little bit of a firestorm with Texas Tech Twitter. Um, we're seeing a lot of cactus emojis out there on Twitter now. Um, I know some folks thought the Dykes hire was maybe a little bit underwhelming, but you can definitely say TCU has exceeded expectations to this point of the season. So, you know, what were your initial thoughts on Sonny Dykes getting hired at TCU and, and what has been the key to their success knowing they have really a similar roster this year compared? To yeah. So, so any evaluation of Sonny Dykes is going to recognize that TCU is 80, 
82% returning production, which is the most in the conference tied with Kansas. And by any metric of, you know, roster talent, team, com- team composite, recruiting rankings, TCU is the third most talented roster in the Big 12 by a good margin. It's, it's Texas and it's OU and then it's TCU and then it's kind of everybody else. The, obviously, TCU is way below Texas and OU, but still a step up above everybody else. That's been true for, for, for many years. And, um, you know, talent's only what you do with it, but that, that is objectively true. So uh, I, I think it just says a lot about how much um, – hold on. I'm going to be – sorry, I'm going to be delicate for a second and just see kind of how many people are in here. Are we recording right now? Yes. Yes, we are. Wonderful. Okay, that's great. That just helps me be a little more diplomatic, a little less off the cuff, um, uh, uh, but that's great. Yeah, so there definitely were some off-field normative issues with um, – you know, whether coach Patterson actually wanted to be a head coach anymore and what he cared about and where he was spending his time and energy relative to where was the most productive place to spend his time and energy. And I don't believe that TCU necessarily conducted a national search. I know that they had conversations to very detailed levels with some pretty big names. Um, and uh, without, you know, telling stories out of school, they had some verbal agreements with coaches who, who really felt like TCU was a solid second option. So they were going to try and go get that SEC East job. And if that didn't work, they were going to come to TCU. Um, I don't know if I can be any more uh, specific there, um, but uh, it does feel like Sonny Dykes did, did feel like the natural progression. He was here in 2017 as an analyst and uh, was familiar with the program. His wife loves the area. And so they were making a strong push to come back. I was a little disappointed um, and in that, but he really has kind of come in. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Seinfeld, but you know, like the Costanza where it's like everything in my life has gone wrong. I'm just going to do the opposite of my instincts. Well, Sunny Dex has kind of been like everything with TC football is going wrong. I'm just going to do the opposite. So they've opened up practice. They've, um, you know, are encouraging people to be excited about the football program. They're, playing an offensive, aggressive style of football. They're not, you know, trying to win by one. And uh, and so that's all been refreshing. I, I've likened it to kind of the start of a new semester in college where you feel like you get this breath of fresh air of like, oh, my schedule is going to be different. I'm going to get my habits right. I'm going to get back on track. This is going to be great. And uh, and so there's definitely some freedom that comes with that. They've really done a good job, um, you know, winning, winning games that they should win and, and kind of handling this, this roster. Well, I think it's really smart that Sonny Dyke said, who is the guy that annoyed me most in the American conference and went and hired Joe Gillespie. Uh, that, that to me is huge as well. So definitely a positive surprise. You, I mean, this is best case scenario, even if TCU, you know, goes two and four the rest of the game, the season or whatever, like, this is amazing. And, and so to have that breath of fresh air, I think is proof of concept of what a Sunny Dykes program can do when they have the roster with this talent and experience. Now, whether he can create that roster again, when they have all this turnover next year, different question, but for now it's at least proof of concept. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, I'm a huge fan of your work, but you brought up. Wait, I'm off- sorry. Are you chef? Are you chef on your chef on Twitter? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hell yeah. yeah. Awesome, man. Cool, cool. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan of your work, but you brought up the offense and how, I mean, it's exceeded expectations, but realistically that's all on Duggan, but you started the season with Chandler Morris and, and he goes down and now you have 
you have Max Duggan in there. What what is he doing that's really sparking this offense that that Chandler Morris might might not have been doing if he was in there full time? Yeah. So the the deal with Chandler was. I mean, he came in and had the stupidest college football game of all time uh, against Baylor last year. I can't help but laugh. It was I, I just happened to be in town and was able to um, go to that game. And it is maybe my favorite TCU game ever because it's just absolutely absurd that they won that game. But they did, and, and he did great, and they really just you know chucked the ball, and he was healthy and mobile. So there's this kind of romantic ideal of, oh, okay, Sonny Dykes is kind of the quarterback whisperer he's going to come over and he's going to, he's going to mold Chandler into what he wants. And that's going to be great. Um, a couple things about that. One, uh, it, it is worth noting that Max Duggan is a better recruit than Chandler Morris ever was. Um, Max Duggan is a very talented individual. His development has definitely been hampered being at TCU the last couple of years and what they've done with it. But he's, he's not like he's, you know, he's had to struggle through the process of development in front of God and everybody but it's not like he's necessarily bad uh, on the merits. Um, and I think we have a good grasp of what he can and can't do now. The issue was in spring practice, nobody separated. And then in fall practice, nobody separated. Um, it was kind of like, oh, we just don't know what we're going to do. And then at the very end, Chandler started taking reps with the ones. And that's really what kind of said like, okay, I think it felt less of, hey, there's a gap in quarterbacks and more like, I guess we're going to go with this guy. And the first half of Colorado was awful. It was terrible. Um, I had some very, very strong feelings about um, where this team was going to go if they looked like that. Um, Duggan came in the second half of Colorado, and it wasn't necessarily a shot in the arm. It's just they stopped throwing and started running, and Colorado's terrible. So you take out the variance of throwing, and you can just beat them. Uh, what they've done with Duggan relative to what they do with Morris is they've they've asked Duggan to do a lot less. If you just go back and look at the highlights – Duggan is going to be throwing to wide open receivers, which is not something that's happened uh, for TCU for a very long time. They are adjusting this, this game to minimize uh, what he has to do. Duggan can throw a deep ball very good if he's not pressured, if he doesn't have to roll out, and if um, uh, you know, and, and it's to his to his right, to his right, to his left, to his left. He can't throw to his right, he can throw to his left. And so they're setting that up and especially you feel like considering field and boundary and kind of figuring that out. Um, the other thing you'll see is they, they're really okay with saying the offense is a lot more valuable if Quentin Johnson has the ball in his hands. And so against Kansas and against um, Oklahoma state, when the chips are down, you'll see them go to the well of Quentin Johnson just runs stick and they throw it to him directly, like wide open because he's fast and can turn around and just catch the ball. Quentin Johnson has his back to the, defense and then can kind of make a move and go um it's almost like uh, uh richard johnson uh richard johnson at uh splits on duo pointed this out but it's like he's like a striker in soccer or something where he's like or like a postman in basketball where he's bodying up the defender and then kind of make that like left right move and get around him so uh, a lot of what they've done is is kind of figured out ways to ask max to do what he's good at and then schemed guys open um you know the the touchdown and overtime that he threw for instance, Quentin Johnson wasn't an amazing ball. It was like, oh, he was just wide open. And so they, they exploited a coverage bust and were able to do that. Um, he's got some really fast receivers that, that can really get there and get in. Um, also, they're running, you know, the reps matter, right? When you're running the air raid, you talk about the golden rep and, and getting these, um, getting, you know, running as much practice as you can so that you get this 
uh, feel for the game. And they've run that. Like they're running mesh, they're running white cross, they're running stick and these these concepts over and over and over again. They're not running inside zone and goes, which is what the previous offense was. They're they're kind of doing these basic plays and getting a lot of practice with them. And 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 Max is really growing into that. And and so you, you say all these nice things about Duggan, and I, I I think he's a hell of a player. I remember him from 2019. I was there for that game. Crazy physical. I think he was a freshman at that point. Stiff arming players 50 yards down the field running in for a touchdown. But I want to ask you, because Chandler won that job, I mean, and you gave the circumstances of why he won that job, but if he comes back full healthy, there's no leash for Duggan. This is Duggan's team through through it out i mean because you guys have had such great success there's no there's no controversy at all is there no yeah no uh chin is healthy um and it's there's just no reason to change it does that mean if if this all goes you know they play a good um like i don't think if things are going poorly against kansas state there's any chance of like Chandler comes into the second half just because i don't think that max is going to collapse any worse than he did in the first half against oklahoma state and I think that your locker room is such right now that that would just be a really bad move. So unless Duggan gets the yips, man, uh, just absolutely can't do anything. Like there's no looming specter. Like Chandler Morris is not sweating on the sidelines waiting to get in or anything. I, I think the situation is pretty clearly this is Max Duggan's team. That that makes sense. And and Duggan himself is getting the call against the Cats for the fourth year straight. This would be the fourth game in a row that the Duggins played against the cats and last year's matchup. We did see him and Chandler Morris and both of those guys combined got sacked four times with a strip sack fumble two times by Felix and Udike Uzama in, in these parts, we like to say that six sacks, that's but knowing six that I don't care what the stats. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate that. We appreciate that. <laughs> um, knowing that I am curious, how, how is your offensive line looking? Because that was a big reason why Felix was able to, get past the line and and get those sacks last year. How are things looking this year, knowing that you're going to be going up against a defense that has guys like Felix who have that big playability? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a little bit terrifying. I will, I will say I'm going to come back to the offensive line. I'll I'll land there. I promise. But last year, Duggan was hurt. Uh, Duggan had a broken foot. And so his mobility wasn't what it was. And why that's interesting this year is that his pressure to sack ratio is like 23%. It's second worst in the Big 12. He's holding on to the ball longer. Like he's not bailing out of the pocket and running at the first sign of pressure. And he's trying to make multiple reads. And sometimes that really bites him. So last year he was physically, you know, limited. And this year it feels like he's just much more prone to sitting in the pocket and and trying to make those reads and trying to extend a play by getting the ball downfield. And that's kind of bit him a little bit. So that'll be something to watch. Um, TC's offensive line has been better. It's hard to not be better when you have – man, I sound so salty when I say things like this. It's hard to not be better when you have an actual offensive line coach as opposed to just a random guy that um, you know your coach likes <laughs> in that position. And that's TCU's case here. Um, they, they have an actual offensive line coach, Ricker from SMU. They brought over Alana Lee to play center. And what that does is that that pushes Steve Avila, who's a fine offensive lineman, but was carrying too much of the burden for TCU last year. That pushes him into the guard role, and that lets him be a little more flexible. You're going to see a lot of GT uh, kind of pulling 
movements. You're going to see on pressure a lot what TC likes to do because you never want to have your running back block an edge rusher, right? Like you, you want to try and make sure your running back doesn't get murdered in pass protection. And so TC will shift and they'll have Steve or uh, Alon go and hit the uh, edge guy and have the running back kind of come in the middle and, and, and fill in there. And, um, and so that's really interesting. Those two guys are really mobile, which I think is an interesting wrinkle there as well. The tackle situation isn't great. Brandon Coleman at left tackle is okay. He's not very good, but I think the biggest kind of damnation of this offensive line is like Andrew Coker is still one playing, but two, he's, he's not playing left tackle. He's playing right tackle. He could not move over to left tackle with all the experience that he has. He's not very good. He gets penalized a lot absolutely is a weak point on this line. And, and it's hard for me to, I hate to like put a college player on blast like that, but TC's offensive line has been better coached, but they do have very much a weak link there at the right tackle, which is kind of putting a ceiling on what they can do. We've been talking a lot about Max Duggan, rightfully so a great player, but there's a couple other key guys on offense that we consistently hear about. First one, Quentin Johnston, I mean, past two games, 22 receptions. It's like 386 yards receiving, incredible numbers. Um, and he's just been extremely hard to guard um, as a wide receiver. And then Kendra Miller, um, your running back, has had some exceptional games as well. You know, from an offensive perspective, we have those two guys. You know, talk about, you know, maybe some of these other um, players outside of Max Duggan that, you know, we as K-State fans should – pay attention to this weekend yeah uh so so definitely the two that you mentioned i think are the most involved there quentin johnston the last two weeks against kansas had like a 5.2 yards per route run which is just a productivity score basically and like over four like cooper cup last year for the rams or the yeah the rams yeah um, in the NFL set like a, a record at like 4.2 yards per route run. And Quentin Johnson has had like 5.8 and 4.8 the last two weeks. He's, he's just been absolutely um, devastating in the run game or excuse me, the receiving game. Um, and so that's really huge for TCU. Uh, second most in targets is, is kind of this combination. It's almost like two guys in a trench coat, Darius Davis and Tay Barber. Um, they're, they're very similar players. Davis is much more, kind of get the ball at or near the line and, and, and break off a big play. Tay Barber is a little bit more get fast and get downfield, but these two guys are, are, are just really hard to account for. They're both small. They're both very fast. Um, TC will do this like super, this is like such a dick move that they do. And it works out so well. They'll run mesh with either Barber or Davis at one of the crossing routes and the other crossing route. They'll put their, one of their tight ends, uh, Jorquavius Spivey, who's like this just 260 pound human. And he'll just run into somebody and let the little guy get free and have an easy completion there. So um, a lot of versatility on the offense to get those three guys, Johnson, Davis, and Barber involved. Against Oklahoma State, we saw something I've been I've been counting on for a while, uh, and that is uh, Jared Wiley, the Texas transfer from tight end, get involved. He has seven targets on the season, but he has three touchdowns. He's 6'7". In the red zone, TCU's like, dude, we're just going to throw it to the big man. Um, and for being six, seven and being that big, he's actually pretty mobile and pretty a- athletic. So he's been really, really great. Kind of a, an unsung dimension that TCU hasn't had on offense in that, um, in that rush, uh, receiving game is kind of that big tight end. Who's a little bit more versatile in the run game. Uh, it is, it is absolutely 
Kendra Miller's team. Uh, Imari De Mercado has been very good in relief. 6.8 yards per attempt, four touchdowns, um, and 4.25 yards after contact. So, like, he's he's a stout guy and, and doesn't necessarily go down the first time he's touched. Having both of them there being able to share the load really helps um, – you know, kind of rising tide lists all boats there. If you get a little less fatigued, you're a little better off. So both of those guys are um, are really great. Kendra Miller, a very good run blocker. Or sorry, De Mercado, a very good pass blocker. I said both of those things backwards. De Mercado, a very good pass blocker too. So you'll see him in a lot of pass sets um, just because he's a little bit more stout, a little bit better at kind of fitting the 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 the, the rush there as well. So um, really deep, you know, team. TCU has had in, in games this season had, you know, 11, 12 guys get receptions, especially early on. And they're, they're really versatile. You'll see, you know, you'll start covering all these guys and you'll see like Savion Williams, Jordan Hudson, both big body kind of mini Quentin Johnson sort of dudes. And then like Gunnar Henderson is your typical white guy slot. And you're like, Oh, we just lost him in this, in the fray. And he, you know, caught this crossing route. So a lot of uh, multiplicity on the TCU offense for sure. I'm going to go off of the outline real quick, Bob. I got to ask this question. You've got incredible stats. I mean, your your name is Stats of War Online for a reason. You just named a stat. Uh, I think it was yards per route run or yards per yeah. route run. It, I have to know what that means. Please explain that one to me because I heard it on the Purple Theory podcast for your reaction to the Oklahoma State game. I have to know what this means. Absolutely. So um, first I'll say my, my agent will bill you guys for the additional question. That's fine. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so I I think about football in a very weird way and I follow a bunch of people who think about football in a very weird way. And it's just a good idea to think about like, how do these players get involved? Like I care about your success rate. Right. But I also care about like, how often are you involved? I think a lot about opportunity share. You'll see me on Thursdays normally, I'll tweet out like who's the most involved college football player and um, yards per route run is a really cool stat. PFF has done some stuff with it. I have my own little calculation for it that just basically says, given how many times you're on the field and running a pass, a pass route, how productive were you? Right. Um, And so the guys that are leading that right now, uh, I'm just pulling that up on, on PFF to, to make sure that I have that correct. Um, I don't want receiving depth. I just want receiving. Sorry, I'm pulling that up as we're talking. Uh, But I mean, it corresponds really well to guys that you think like, oh, you're on the field a lot. And when you're on the field, you're doing really good things. Marvin Mims is leading the Big 12. uh, But Quentin Johnson is is gaining on him because they've had terrible quarterback play. Uh, But guys who are guys who are leading the nation right now in yards per route run, um, you have. Baylor's Gavin Holmes, um, Emika uh, Egbuka for Ohio State is up there, uh, Rashi Rice at SMU, Marvin Harrison Jr. for Ohio State. So it's these guys that are just on the field a ton, and they're also getting targeted a ton and catching the ball a lot. So it's a really nice kind of productivity measure of how often are you on the, you know, how often are you involved in the pass play? And when you are involved in the pass play, how often are you? you know, benefiting your team. Okay. That's perfect. I just, I wanted to know that one because I mean, that is just an elite stat. And I'm like, listening to that. Like if he's, if he's over Cooper cups numbers, I mean, he has to be insane what he's doing and he's been playing out of his mind, but I want to switch it over to defense. You guys, I mean, the defense has really kind of been to the surprise because I poo pooed on TCU's defense coming into the season 
but you guys, you you bring in transfers uh, from Navy. What's his name? Johnny Hodges. You also have another ha- another Hodges. Tomlinson. You got a Jamoy Hodge. How do you how do you keep those all together? <laughs> one. And then how was the defense playing at all those positions from the the backfield to the line? Yeah, so it definitely is confusing because it's Johnny Hodges and Jamoy Hodge, and they play right next to each other. Conveniently, they couldn't look more different. Um, You know, Jamoy Hodge is like basically an edge rusher playing linebacker, and and so he's a little bit bigger and a little bit longer. And uh, Johnny Hodges is – we call him all sorts of things. We call him Captain America. We call him – uh, the fire, the fire, uh, uh, fire hydrant. We call him, uh, he, he's like Bill Romanowski, man, like a 1990s linebacker dude. Um, and so that's really fun. Um, he's been a big help. TC's linebacking core is so deep. Marcel Brooks got hurt. And so that, that also makes it a lot thinner there as well. Mark Perry is the Colorado transfer. Who's been a godsend in the run game for TCU. And so that's been really helpful. Um, I, I think I said this out loud earlier, but like Sun Dykes literally said, which which American Conference defensive coordinator annoyed me the most? I'm gonna I'm gonna bring him over. And they brought Joe Gillespie, and there's a big switch from the four two five to the three three five. And 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 the four two five is not necessarily a defense so much as it is a front, but it is a switch from Gary Patterson's defense to anyone else in the entire world, a normal human being's defense. Um, you guys are probably familiar with the like the kind of uh, jokes and, and memes about like Gary Patterson being sweaty, right? That's, that's like oh, a thing. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. The, the reason that's, that's there is one because he sweats a lot, but two, uh, the way that he calls defense is like literally every play he is telling every player what to do. Um, so he's like yelling at the players and getting them coordinated. And then the, you know, the offense motions and he does something else. And so it's very stressful. And the the Gary Patterson defense is very much like, I can have all the information. I can get in the right position. We can make the play. The Joe Gillespie defense is nicknamed the sk- the the spill and kill, right? They want to fill those A and B gaps, push you outside, and then have uh, the linebackers, the Hodges, the Winters, the um, uh, Mark Perrys make those tackles in the run game, right? They want to deny in the middle and force you outside. Of course, against Kansas State, maybe that's a bad decision, but we can talk about that too. Uh, and, and And so what a lot of these guys are talking about is just this like – athletic freedom to play football as opposed to knowing where am I supposed to be exactly? How am I supposed to, you know, uh, respond exactly to what this guy is doing? What they're doing instead is saying, how do I approach the situation? I have a responsibility for this gap. How do I, you know, make a play here? And there are redundancies. So a lot more of a leash for these guys, a longer leash, excuse me, for these guys to make these athletic plays as opposed to having to make these like cerebral plays this year. So that's, that's been really, really good for, I think a lot of the athletes uh, at TCU Um, Dom Williams time and Mitchell at nose tackle have been much better than expected. That's, that's shocking, honestly, to me. Um, And and that's honestly been a bright spot here for, for the, the defense as well. Very disruptive in the middle. That that all makes sense, and I think we're we're gonna go ahead and and ask two more questions, and then if you if you have time, Parker, we'd love to open it up to a little bit of Q and A with with the audience. But if you don't have time, that's all good as well. Um, I do just have one question, and then I think Chef will will close us Ooh. out with this. But um, yeah, I, I, with, I got a few minutes. Don't 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 sweat. Okay. Weekend. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, with your with your advanced stats prediction for this weekend, you put TCU over the top of the Cats. 
with a projected final of somewhere around like 29 to 24. Are you sticking with that for your official prediction or is your gut telling you something different? No, I'm a coward. I predict against my my projections all the time, and I predict TC to, to lose. Um, I think that my worry here is that TC has been on an unsustainable run of good luck. I mean, they didn't have to face Dylan Gabriel. They didn't have to face Jalen Daniels. Um, even against SMU, they had a couple bounces that really went their way. I think the luck runs out. And the 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 storyline here with kind of like, you know, if you look at that preview, if you guys – haven't uh, you know uh, whoever's listening i'm sure you've seen on twitter um I, I you know you look at the success rate versus the epa per play for kansas state's offense they're very low success rate but very high epa per play especially in the run game uh effectively what tcu is going to have to deal with is like i mean it's going to be third and eight and you have to keep track of adrian martinez but also stop philip brooks and malik Knowles from getting open so that that's going to stretch tcu's defense really thin i think the narrative here is can tcu keep up with kind of the big play explosiveness um, of that Kansas state offense. So I'm, I'm actually going to say Kansas state 31 TCU 30. I think the run, the fun runs out this weekend, man, man, that's brutal. I mean, <laughs> I, as a, as a fan, I could only imagine picking against the cats. And I think this one's going to be a tightly contested game. I got a question right before we close it out. Um, you guys are on, are you going to go 10 straight games? Did your buy come after week two? Dude, freaking Gary. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happens. That's not going to happen again. With TC, two things are going to be very different about TC scheduling going forward. TC is never going to play at SMU ever again. And, and they're never going to have a buy in week two ever again. That's that's crazy when I saw that. And I think this that leads me into the question I have. Do you think the game you pick you predicted K State to win this? Whether or not uh K State wins or TCU wins, who do you think that second team in Arlington is gonna be? And if if twelve or ten straight games in the big uh twelve is gonna be a factor in TCU making it to Arlington. Wait, who's the who's the first team in the Big Twelve? Is that a foregone conclusion? I don't think it is. I think I think K State's going to be battle tested, and I think our buy came at a good time. I think K State is going to be the other team in Arlington. I'm wondering if you think TCU is like the driver, no matter if they lose this game or win this game. Basically, is what I'm asking. Well, that win over Oklahoma State is huge. Um, but if you lose to Kansas state here, yeah, that's pretty, that, that, that makes it a little more, a little less dicey. If TCU beats Kansas state, then not making Arlington is going to be involved some disaster here. Yeah. It's almost Uh, impossible. Really? Right. Right. (laughs) And so, um, and so I, I, I think the big deal when you kind of separate that this out is like, who's played Texas and who hasn't. And well, Oklahoma state's playing this weekend, Kansas state still got them and, and TCU hasn't yet either. So um, you think about like the top four teams that all have to, all are projected to make it. All four of those are going to play each other again. Um, and so that's, that's pretty interesting. I think that if I had to pick who was going to be there in the end, I think Texas is getting hot at the right time. Um, and so I think they will be one of the two teams. And then I'm more inclined to believe the winner of TCU, Kansas state makes it relative than, you know, somebody like a, a uh, Oklahoma State or a Baylor kind of sneaking back in. 
Awesome. I love it. Well, we're going to go ahead and open it up to the room now. So if you have a take or a question for Parker, spit it out. I see we've got Scott, we've got Alex, and we got Coley Dub on I will not take a question from Scott McFarlane. No, you are. You are, Parker, because (laughs) I I, I typically – I take a step back. I want my cocaine Willie friends to do their own podcasting thing. I talk into a microphone five times a week. But I had to jump up here because Parker – you're a coward and a fraud because <laughs> here you are doing your K-State TCU primer, which will publish tomorrow. You have them winning. Then you come on this show and you're like, oh, I'm going to play to the Wildcats on this show. <laughs> so has something changed between Sunday slash Monday and now to make you change your prediction? Or are you just trying to get new best friends and throw me off to the side? I'm already his best friend. Listen, I'm already his Freddy, best friend. Freddy Spaghetti, Freddy Spaghetti is all about the money, baby. Uh, um, uh, I, I've drank so many beers since Sunday, Scott. I don't even know. I'm, I'm a total fraud. I'm going to take this opportunity to tell everyone about a magical afternoon that Jimmy at KSU fan and I had sitting at Boulevard in Kansas city, um, convinced that this work party that Scott was telling us he had to go to was actually happening at Boulevard. And we thought Scott was going to show up. It was very fun. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's all my response to that. Scott's a hater. <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally dumb. I, I, I mean, no, I just want to comment that I think that was a, just a classic Scott Wildcat reverse jinx is what is what Parker's doing. Um, also, Parker, I appreciate um, – I'm Roly Poly Coley on Twitter. I'll out myself there, and I comment and say stupid shit to your tweets all the time, and you always reply. That's much appreciated in a kind way too even. Um, I am going to disagree, however, with the uh, little TCU hand sign about the hand sign looking like an angry frog. Man, I just, I've, 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 myself this week, I've looked at my hands a thousand times trying to do the TCU hand sign looking like an angry frog. It's just not there for me, man. I'm sorry, I've tried. I just don't I get it. it. It's not as intuitive as like the long <laughs> The rice owl is pretty good. My favorite is, is honestly rice North owl? Texas. Okay. Oh, I, every, okay. I need to get Wait, caught sorry. up on the whole Texas hand sign things because I'm clearly behind because I don't know the rice owl. I don't know the North Texas one. There has to be. I mean, a I've been down in Texas for six years and I've never seen the other ones. Oh, every every single Texas school has one. The Rice Owl has one. You know, like even Texas A&M, like Texas A&M is the, the thumbs up. They're cool. UNT is like a a little like UNT is awesome because it's like literally like make your fingers into a talon and just like, um, yeah. So so the the TCU sign is it's not the best. I'm I'm there with you. It's fine. It's just something that we do. I will say the the way to do it is you just make a peace sign and then you make it angry is what they say. You just pull your pull your fingers down and. If you squint a little bit, you can think, oh, it's kind of a frog. I get it. I get it. But it is a little weird. It, it is. You just got to have a hand sign in Texas. It's the, it's the fingernails. It's the fingernails or the eyeballs. I get that part. Yeah. And that's the yeah, most. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, oh, my yeah, God. I think, that's, I I think just, that's it. I just realized that. Right. Was, I've been right? trying to figure out this whole time what it was. That, that makes so much more sense. It's now. a horny toad, not a frog. Correct. It, well, okay, so no, it's neither. It's not a toad or a frog. It's actually a lizard. And the story is that when they dug up the um, stadium, they like found this nest of horned lizards, which are like an actual animal. Horned frog is not real. 
Um, and they mistakenly said it's like a horned frog. And then they just kind of rolled with that. There's actually like a horned lizard in um, in the, the Fort Worth Zoo. I think they're endangered now. I don't 100% know. But like that's the thing that like spits blood out of its eyes and is like a creepy little whatever. And TCU just calls it the horned frog because somewhere along the way, someone made a mistake. I actually, uh, I have a, not necessarily a buddy, but a guy I know who actually worked on like in like the oil fields and laying, laying pipe, laying the pipelines down in West Texas. And he would all like on his social media, he would always post pictures of the uh, horned lizards, I should say. They're creepy, man. They're awesome. They're like these little like fat, angry looking dudes. I love them. Aces are, aces are analytical cat. That's that's oh what's up? Hey, follow me on follow me on Twitter. I want to see I want to see other people doing stat stuff. Heck yeah! I uh, I actually don't do stats. I more do film study because oh, I it's actually a, somewhat a joke because I also run a show. It's a it's kind of a joke that I started way back in the day. That I actually hate numbers, but I don't. But <laughs> the the main question that I had with you was when I was doing uh, film study again for uh, the matchup upcoming. I noticed that, you know, obviously the you, you mentioned it's the, the kill and spill um, type defense, which is, you know, a variation of the 3-3 stack. And something that I noticed against uh, Oklahoma State, SMU, and a little bit against Oklahoma was, is how they were lining up a little differently. So instead of the normal 3-3 stack where you have the, the nose and then uh, the DNs on the tackle, they started playing the nose over in a shade. Do you know if that was, and then the, funnily enough, one of the DNs playing in outer space on passing downs, but do you know if that was more of a schematic thing? Has that been more common recently or, you know, is there a reason for it? It's just something I thought that was, God help you if you listen to the episode where I talked about it for like 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, no, I love those. I love those little details and kind of trying to figure out what is a coach doing by moving a guy here. Um, from what I've seen, um, there's a kind of a couple. You have to think of everything in terms of compensating for the linebackers this this year because they're just thin and and there's a very inherent ceiling on like how good they are. And so I think that the shading is probably thinking about angles. And saying like D Winters is kind of playing that more predator role where he's like up in the front, but he's also back in coverage and kind of moving around. And I will say many good things about Johnny Hodges and Jamoy Hodge, but I will not say that like taking angles and pursuit are their best things. And so I think they're playing with the front a little bit to try and get those guys better angles. Um, Also with how good Mark Perry has been in the third level at uh, run defense, I think there's maybe a little freedom to try and guess and shade, especially against a team like, um, you know, Oklahoma State is going to run. They're, they're not running gap scheme, right? Like they are running zone. And so if you see how the defense is or see how the offense is set up, you can pretty reliably pick the direction that they're going to run. Um, and so I think it's a combination of kind of opponent and compensating for the linebackers. Do we have any other questions on the stage or in the audience? I see a couple people in the audience who may have questions, so we'll uh, we'll give it a couple I, uh, seconds. But if no one if no one pops up, we'll we'll get through our questions. And Matt, go ahead. I just I just have a quick question, and not necessarily as much to do with the game this weekend, but just overall with TCU. Obviously, you your big rivalry is Baylor, and 
we've seen some epic TCU Baylor games, you know, for many years now, you know, what, what is that rivalry like as a TCU fan? Um, you know, and, and maybe what's, what's one of your best memories of the rivalry, um, you know, be able to share with us. Okay. Well, one TCU is six and one in the last seven games against Baylor. And the only time they beat us is when we basically were playing, uh, you know, without a, without a quarterback and absolutely terrible uh, 2019. So every rivalry likes to think that there's a good guy and a bad guy. And objectively there is in this, in this rivalry, there is TCU. That's the good guy. And Baylor's the bad guy. I will. Um, there have been some like truly awful TCU Baylor games, 2015. It was like 30 degrees and raining. <laughs> Um, and, uh, that game went to, uh, almost went to overtime. Maybe it was like a fourth down stop, but it was just miserable and terrible. Um, actually my, my wife, my then, then was my girlfriend and her family, uh, left, but her sister stayed. So her sister and I met up afterwards to try and like get an Uber or get a car and like go home. And her sister just walked up to me and took off her boot and emptied it it was like full of water because it's just been raining uh, all on the students while they were sitting in the student section there. So uh, that was a, that was a pretty fun memory and, and overall terrible game. Um, the 2012 game was like an absolute shootout. Oh, Baylor um, 2012. Don't bring them yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. And so that one was like a cool back and forth, but kind of annoying. Like the, the thing is, is like when TCU beats Baylor, they beat the crap out of them. And when uh, Baylor beats TCU, it's like very close. I will say that College Parker had a very perverse uh, satisfaction in watching Robert Griffin um, do like a back roll on his first, you know, he did that thing where he'd like throw a touchdown and then he'd sit down and like do a backwards roll and stand up or whatever. And then we just like beat the hell out of him. So that was, that was satisfying. I, I had a similar experience in 2011 when RG3 threw a threw a pick to Arthur Brown uh, at at Manhattan. That was that was a wonderful experience. So no love lost for Baylor here in uh, in in my household at least. Yeah, uh, hey man, they're they're a terrible, uh, uh, just a terrible, just terrible athletics program. That's all. I hey <laughs> Parker, I got one last question from me. Um, I don't know sure. if we're going to get you out of here if you got anywhere to be, but I got one question for you. you. You got all the stats, you got all the EPA numbers, you got all that stuff, and it all looks good on paper. But if you listen to any coach that does their press conference, I know it's probably a lot of coach speak, but they all bring up momentum. And we all kind of as fans see momentum as part of the game. Is there a way that you can formulaically put momentum into like your your descriptions of a game or how you uh trait uh traits a game or whatever no largely the argument against momentum is that you just can't quantify it like there's right. there's not a way people have tried people have been like what's the clutch gene and and all this stuff and and systematically it's just really hard to show any empirical evidence that there is some kind of like I'm going to sound like a huge freaking nerd. Sorry. There's some kind of like time dependent sequential nature to the, you know, the progress of, of college football outcomes, but like generally they're drawn from a distribution that's not time dependent. And there's really not a way to say like good plays are correlated with, you know, good plays beforehand because a lot of the time 
good plays are correlated with good plays before them because the better team is the one that is making good plays. So um, it's really hard to capture what that, you know, what momentum is generally. Um, and a lot of times it's just like a lot, a lot of times you go back and you look at momentum, you're like, Oh, well actually like they exploited a weakness on the defense and just did that. And the defense didn't adjust. And that's why they were running good plays. Not because they were, you know, not because they were feeling it. Right. I, I was just wondering, because I mean, you hear, I mean, Sonny Dykes talk about it in that in his presser, which is also weird at TCU. I know it's a private school, but there's like no media availability. Like you can't watch any of these press conferences on YouTube or anything, but I found Sonny Dykes talking about like the Oklahoma state game and the momentum that they had in that after halftime where they kind of just, like you said, they exploited the defense that never really adjusted and their defense had momentum because their offense was scoring touchdowns. It was just, it was just a weird, weird kind of circle talk, but I just wondered if momentum was actually a real thing that could be. I mean, people definitely believe it is. And I'll say like having worked with, um, I can't, I really not trying to be coy. I just can't go out, you know, talking about who I talk to on a weekly basis, but like working pretty regularly with power five college football coaches, a lot of them believe that momentum is real. Um, and, and, but also a lot of those guys just get up at the press conference on Tuesday and just say shit, man. <laughs> um, they're just like, dude, I just need to, I just need to say something that's going to like, you know, help my players feel better or get somebody off my back. And so, um, I wouldn't put too much stock in that. Generally, I don't think coaches are thinking about momentum so much as they're thinking about like, let's make a play and then let's make another play. Let's make a play. Let's make another play. Love it. Yeah, we we love our our lunch pail kind of guys that like to go to work every day and and work hard and really grind it out and they're sneaky fast. So uh, love love a good coach speak press conference <laughs> and we get them literally every single week from Coach Kleiman. Well, dude, he got the the leak with the, okay. This is. I probably will hop off here and tie off this. This is this is my parting gift to all of you. Um, 2020, there was concern about whether Skylar Thompson or Will Howard is going to start against TCU, and Chris Kleiman definitely smoked out some uh, sources. Are we aware of this? Is this something that's in your universe? I've never heard this. Well, I know about the Will Howard uh, okay. starting. Yes. The very so, first- so Gary Patterson has some very deep ties with Kansas state at one point was potentially taking the Kansas state job. Um, but there was a whole fiasco with that. Anyway, there's like a long time. Uh, and Scott, Scott could, can probably tell this a little bit better, but there's like a long time um, journalist, maybe the two, two, four, seven arrivals. I, I, I'm not putting anybody on blast here. It's not this guy's Tim fault. Fitzgerald. At all. Was talking to Gary it's and was Patterson. passing information. Kleiman, Kleiman was pretty sure <laughs> that he was passing info to Gary. And so they said that like uh, Skyler was going to start when Will Howard was going to start, but they like moved it back and forth. And it became very clear that like only one person was saying that Skyler was going to start. And I legitimately like Gary Patterson called me at like 1159 on a Tuesday night and was like, what the F are you talking about? I was like, dude, your guy is giving you bad info. Like Will Howard's going to start this weekend. Uh, it's not going to be Skyler. Like you need to, you need to plan for what that's going to be and arguing or whatever. And, uh, and Gary got totally cooked. Gary like 
believed his guy. And so Chris Kleiman successfully like ran a psyop of disinfo uh, to one smoke out people who might be leaking stuff, but also like intentionally confuse Gary Patterson about who's going to start that weekend. <laughs> that is absolutely wild. Incredible, incredible stuff. Fantastic. Well, Parker, I, I appreciate that being your parting gift. That's all we have for you tonight. Thank you so much for hopping on. Uh, and best of luck this weekend. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I hope um, you guys have a terrible weekend. And then the rest of the season is really fun for Kansas State. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, thanks so much. And if anybody had a question they didn't, you know, didn't um, get to or, or want to talk about something else, you know, DMs are open. Uh, message me on Twitter or whatever. Happy to chat about, you know, football and stats and everything. Chef, go ahead and hit us with your. I said it on the Bosco's boys. You'll probably hear this. I mean, you know, Cocaine Willie kind of drops before the Bosco's boys Thursday whip around. I'm not going to knock the Bosco's boys. I love the Bosco's boys. I'm just kidding, Scott. You're going to hear me on a Thursday whip around. I got it 35, 31 cats in a nail biter. It's going to be a great game. Oh, man. I can't believe I'm going to say this. All right. I don't have a great feeling about this weekend. Um, there's a couple things that concern me. One, I think we have to take a step up offensively. Not, I think we have to take a step up offensively from the Iowa state game to even have a shot on this one. Um, now I have been to Fort Worth a good handful of times and that environment is interesting. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, 2014 was an electric environment. I remember being down there. I think we're going to see a similar environment on Saturday night. Um, one, this is a huge game, obviously, for TCU. I I think it's going to be close. I think TCU is going to pull it out 28-27. Um, I obviously hope I'm wrong. I was also going to pick against Oklahoma if I was on the pod that week. Um, I just, I, I don't, I don't know. I just don't have a good feeling this week. I'm also feeling a little bit nervous, but I'm still going to be taking the cats. I've got us 31 to 27. We've won every game that we score 30 or more points in still to this day. So I'm sticking with the cats and we've got four people on stage. If you want to get on stage and get your predictions out there, go ahead and request to come up. Cole, you came off. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, following up what I said on Bosco boys. Uh, I don't know. I've just had really positive vibes this week. I'm feeling really confident in the cats. The bike couldn't have come at any better time. It seems like our guys are healthy. They're ready to do it. I'm going 38, 31 cats. You know, maybe the over doesn't hit, but I think that I think the cats are going to win by seven at least. So our defense has stepped up. Our defense has stepped up in every game necessary. They made big plays when necessary. They held, you know, basically the same game plan you had against the Iowa State wide receiver with uh, the TCU wide receiver. I can't think of his name. You all know it, but I think they're up for the challenge. The radio. Does anybody know what Chris Chris Kleiman's record is after the bye? I think it's good, right? I'll find out. In the meantime. Who else, who else has prediction they want to get up there? We've got Alex, we've got Ace, and we've got... I've got a low-scoring affair, uh, probably 
20, 24, 17. Cats. Ace. No, there's someone in the audience who uh, who doesn't like when people change their predictions. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it from from my show, and that's gonna be 24-10 cats. And it, a lot of it just comes down to you know I think K State will try to play ball control to contain the more explosive offensive TC. Um, Kleiman is one and two from a bye week. We were one and one in 2019. I don't count 2020, 2021. We lost. Well, it's time for him to even it out. I think Ace and Alex kind of alluded to it. These are these these could potentially be low scoring affairs if their predictions come true. I've got Bob's locks right now. So so last week, uh, very bad week. Just a no good, very bad week for me. For Bob's locks, we had Baylor at West Virginia with Baylor uh, covering a three and a half point spread that missed. We had Iowa State at Texas with Texas taking the money line. That one hit. We got KU at OU, KU money line. That was a miss uh, and a very stupid decision. Oklahoma State at TCU. I took Oklahoma State money line. That was obviously a miss. And then finally, Nebraska at Purdue. This was the second one of mine that hit out of the five that I had last week to hit. So this week I am doing something a little bit different. I am taking my bets using at stats of wars, advanced stats. And so for this week, I've got KU at Baylor KU plus seven and a half to cover. Parker has a 5.8 point spread. So I'm taking KU to cover there. We've got Memphis at Tulane next I've got Tulane minus seven and a half on the spread there to cover. Uh, he has an 8.75 point spread. So he's got Tulane pretty easily covering that one. Ole Miss at LSU. I've got Ole Miss plus one and a half. Ole Miss is looking good this season. This is kind of a make or break game for, for Brian Kelly, I feel like, this season. Uh, and they're good. They're good when they play in Baton Rouge, obviously. Uh, but Parker's stats had it tied evenly. So I'm taking old miss on this one. Um, and then the next two, I have Texas at Oklahoma state. I'm going to take the over it's a 61 and a half point line is what I found on uh, FanDuel. and Parker had it going upwards of like 84 points for projected points. So I'm taking the over on that one. And then for UCLA, Oregon, I'm also taking the over, uh, over 69 and a half. He has with his projected points, 74.82 projected points there. So I'm going to blame Parker if my stuff goes wrong. And then, uh, Matt, I see that you've added your alternate, your, you know, fireball Matt's locks here. Fireball Matt went two and oh last week, Michigan demolished Penn state knew that was going to happen. And then Utah covered against USC or uh, excuse me, USC covered. That was what I meant. Um, this week's locks. I am doing Penn State again. I'm doing an alternate spread of minus seven, which is plus 130 versus Minnesota. I think they will beat up Minnesota at Beaver Stadium. And then there must be something about Oklahoma State that I don't know because I think it's incredible that they're six and a half point dogs against Texas and Stillwater. I think it's got to do with Yes. Oh, so Sanders is out. I don't know if he's necessarily I, I, out. I don't think he's out. Officially. Didn't someone tweet that earlier this week? Like he's no. or I think that was DY. He might have said something like he's probably. Yeah, it looks well, like if you look, 
it looked like the jury was kind of out on if he was going to play from what I saw. Well, they said the same thing last week and he played. So, I mean, Gundy said this week in his presser, they asked him about Spencer Sanders injury. And they said, he said, don't ask me about injuries. Well, you, I'm not going to give my hand away. And just to let you guys know if Spencer Sanders is going to play, I think he's going to play, but I don't think he'll be, I don't think he'll be as he's not going to be full strength. And it is his throwing shoulder, but take that for what it's worth. Oklahoma's here's the thing. I don't think Texas is as good as people think Texas is. And I think Oklahoma state's going to cover the six and a half at home. There's my two. I just think they're a different animal with Quinn Ewers and he's, he's proven himself to be better. Obviously light years better than Hudson card. And I just, I don't see, I don't see Oklahoma state winning this game. Well, they might cover, but I don't see them winning. That is why I picked for them to cover. They may not win. There you go. There you go. That's how bad. That is how betting works. And, and that's uh, Bob's and Matt's locks for the week. So the last thing that we have for tonight, and then we'll close it out, but we've got guys talking ball. Last week we did who we wanted to win for uh, Oklahoma State versus TCU and what we thought would be the better thing for for K-State, depending on who would win that matchup. For this week, we're talking a little bit more about coaching. So if a coach goes on a Big 12 title run in either football or basketball, how much of a leash does that earn you as a head coach? Chef, feel free to to expand on that if there's anything else that you want to add there. Well, you know, I mean – Let's think about the coaches that have won Big 12 titles. And I I was thinking specifically about K-State and the kind of culture we have built here. You know, we're not necessarily a blue blood, which I don't think is a weird thing to say. Like, we could be a nine-win team consistently, which is, I mean, top tier if you think about it, the Wisconsin kind of style. But the Wisconsin guy just got fired. Um, and, you know, if Kleiman were to win a Big 12 title here, let's say that he loses. He exploits the transfer portal better than I think a lot of coaches do, and he brings in a lot of talent through the transfer portal. But on paper, next year will be a drop-off in talent on the roster. Maybe not with our freshman class, but just with our seniors and stuff like that. So if he wins the Big 12 title this year, how many years does he have before we're like, oh, you got to get this shit together? Because I think it's like every four years you should have a realistic title contender. And at K-State, I think that is dynamite. We're no Ohio State. We're no Michigan. But we should be consistently winning. And our down years should be bowl eligibility. I don't know what everybody I- else thinks. I agree with that. And I think the thing that I was trying to look into when you posed this question was what kind of history of this is there in the big 12? And the issue is at least in the big 12, there's not a ton of sample size of history to go off of because it's Oklahoma. You've got a majority. Yeah. You've got Oklahoma in football and you've got KU in basketball who are, who are winning the lion's share of those big 12 championships. So, I guess. Sorry, sorry, Cole. I'm, I'm, I'm. I've got this one thing, and then I'll, I'll pass it over to you. But 
there's not a ton of sample size to go off of. So if I had to set a line, so to speak, I would say it's probably three to five years. So maybe you set the line at like four and a half seasons ish. Um, we had three seasons of Bruce after his 1819 title run and the 2017, 2018 elite eight run. And then I guess one of the other examples I could see is, is Mac Brown got four years after the 2009 Texas championship in, in football Patterson got like seven seasons, but he was kind of like a Bill Snyder in some ways for that program at TCU. So he got a little bit of a longer leash, similar to Snyder, who his last Big 12 title was 2012. He still made bowl games and he still had some good bowl appearances and a couple wins mixed in there. But as far as winning a Big 12 championship, it was seven years after after that that he was then dismissed or seven full seasons. So it's it's interesting. It's an interesting question. And I hadn't really thought about it until you. So three to five years, I, I can agree with that, but I think it also depends on how drastic the trajectory changes. So let's just throw it out there. Let's say we win the Big 12 in football this year. Amazing. Next year, we're perceiving there's going to be a little bit of a drop off. Let's say Kleiman goes five and seven, misses a ball. Ah! Let's say the next. Okay. I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. Goes five and seven next year, misses a bowl. Let's say the year after he goes three and nine, four and eight is I just in how, how things trend in college football, that could be an, an ouster there. Like I, if, if there's a drastic enough decrease in improvement after even a couple years, I think it's quite possible. Um, I, I really think the leash nowadays is just so short compared to what it used it is short, but you have to think, what do we what can we gain from letting Chris Kleiman go off of a Big 12 title two years previous? What what is and like you said, the trajectory of what the team is gonna be. Let's say Avery Johnson's here. Let's say he's developing. Is he playing? Is is he a failure? Is that recruiting class that we thought was elite not elite? Are these bust? Is the are is the team a sieve and players are dropping out of it like crazy. I mean, that's kind of really, and what I think of when I think of leashes, I think of like LSU, LSU wins national titles and their coaches are gone like that. So are we there as a program? Like you said, two years and you're failing. Are we gone or do we give climbing time to build? But I mean, is really from what he showed us, Every year is eight wins outside of COVID. So if you're, if like you said, if he's got a three win season and a five win season, maybe, maybe it is time for him to go. I don't know. I mean, I, I think this, this is a really like, it's an interesting question to pose because, um, you know, we haven't been in this situation as a program really, you know, ever except for, you know, after Bill retired the first time and we had Ron Prince. Um, and obviously that was a, a three-year kind of situation there. Um, but I, I think it all depends on the trajectory of the program and what the program looks like at basically that snapshot in time. Um, and if you have a program that's trending downwards and let's say you go three and nine, you know, that's not obviously competitive in the big 12 and you have to try and maintain some type of levity. So it, 
it's just so dependent on, on what situation, you know, how does the program look? How many guys are transferring in and out? Cole, do you think firing your coach in the big 12 nowadays sets you back on track or does that? Oh, Jesus. Um, I mean, there's just so many X factors that go into this, this question specifically. Uh, so your question was repeat your question. I have to. Well, this. what I asked you, I mean, the the real question is, after a Big Twelve title at K State, or just really in general, uh, or a a championship of any magnitude, how much is the leash? And I, what I asked you is if if you're failing after your championship or your Big 12 title or whatever, does firing your coach level you back or does it set you back? Uh, man, I mean, like, it's just crazy because you, you, it's crazy because we have examples of both worlds a little bit. Like, you know, we saw Snyder win a Big 12 championship in 2003 and shit fell off real quick in 2004 and 2005. Like, shit got aggressive quickly there. Which is crazy to think about. That's two years. Um, But then, you know, we see... I mean, I don't know. That's a tough question. Um, It kind of also depends on your past program success, according to fans, technically, because, like, you know, there's Nebraska who is winning nine, ten games, and they fired multiple head coaches for winning nine, ten games. And, you know, winning games, and they fired their coaches after two, three years because they weren't winning enough. Or, But, like, at a program like KU, you know, say Leopold goes – say he gets to a bowl game this year, six and six. They should give him a huge contract update because – He's done what no coach has done in over a decade. There are just so many variables that play into it, and it's just – I don't know. I think it's just – it's its different at every program, and I think Bob Trollsby's initial question was not necessarily K-State specific and more so as a whole. And like Matt said about LSU, or even Andre – or the good chef, I should say, you, you, you said how, you know, LSU wins national championships and they fire head coach after an extra season or two. I don't know. It just seems like it's an impossible. Yeah, seems like it's an impossible question to answer depending on each program because every program has different standards and what. I think you're right though in that it, we've seen examples of both. We've seen examples where guys like Leipold can come in and and have more immediate success, whereas other programs, it it takes a little bit time to build toward that. And I think we've seen more time to build toward that with Kleiman. Granted, he had the disadvantage of dealing with a really crummy COVID season and, and, but he's done a really good job with playing the transfer portal. He, his recruiting has definitely ramped up in recent seasons. You see a guy, I mean, we're just talking about it earlier with Sonny Dykes where Prior to the transfer portal, yeah, he's the quarterback whisperer, but he was really just kind of an average coach. He never really had a ton of success when he was in the Pac-12 at Cal. He had good success at SMU in the American Athletic Conference, which is objectively a a step below the Big 12 and other Power 5 conferences. 
but he was able to get guys like Shane Bouchelle from Texas. He was able to, to have offensive scheming in a guy like Garrett Riley, who comes from more of that air raid style offense. And he was able to quickly turn things around at TCU and granted, we'll see how legitimate that is probably this weekend and in the coming weeks, but they did get that big win against Oklahoma state against the most tenured coach in the big 12 and Mike Gundy, who, who knows the, he knows the league. He knows you're going to get what you're going to get with Gundy. So he's doing a damn good job to start out Sonny Dykes's and, and I've been totally proven wrong on him, but it's interesting because we have seen examples of both where it's taken some coaches longer and it's taken some coaches more immediate success. So it can be kind of a leveling up or it can, <clears throat> it can be more of a re just kind of like what you said, Trollsby is just like, it's just cr- like, it's just crazy how much like fit and culture can play into things. Like just since you failed elsewhere, it doesn't mean you're not going to succeed somewhere else. And that that's a big part of it. I, I just, it's just crazy, you know, and you see this with like in a grand scheme of things, you see this with like players in the NFL or NBA or college level. You see it everywhere. Like with transfer portal, like just since you didn't succeed here, well shit, even Adrian to this point, even Adrian Martinez, like, Obviously, he had all the records and accolades, or I, I fucked up that word. Like, just since you don't necessarily succeed in the win column elsewhere, doesn't mean you can't succeed here, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. It's just a. Just I mean, culture and fit have their place, but it all comes down to wins and losses. And if Chris Kleiman, he's, I mean, after Bill Snyder, Chris Kleiman was the perfect culture fit for K State. And Chris Kleiman wins eight games a year. If let's say he wins the conference championship this year, but if he's not winning games, it doesn't matter how good your culture fit is. How many years does that give you? How many years does a one winning season or a, a three seasons of proven success give you? Does is his leash shorter because of our successes so uh, consistent be, while he was here before, or does? How long does that give him? Does it only two years? Then like Lance and you brought up, oh, Hayes, Lance Leipold, let's say he goes six and six this season and he converts back to the two win seasons, the three win seasons, the one win season. Is Lance Leipold out? How long does, how long does he have? I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not who you requested, but I think he said it's a good perspective. It's like, it has to be like, you know, every four years, right? Like the recruiting classes, where you get a team four year guys, your 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 coaching habits, your 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 way of you know coaching and and what am I trying to say? Coaching and I don't know, man. I just think I think winning trumps all. And if you're not winning at a consistent click, then your leash just gets shorter. Even I think it actually gets shorter if you've had success previous. Like, okay, I have, a, I have a more fun hypothetical, like the counter argument to what you're talking about. How good do we think we could sustain? Like, let's, we're talking about rebuild next year already. But what if it's not a rebuild? We just keep hauling in the transfers. Avery Johnson is a immediate stud. Do stays an extra year just to 
to help us get along to another nine tendon season. I don't know. No, I I completely agree with that. Let's think glass half full and think how how good could we be sustained? Like no, I don't think. I was just gonna say, or Jake Rubley is a stud, and and we're able to to let Avery redshirt and. I mean, who knows? Who knows? We have a quarterback battle in year two, potentially. But. Biscuits from being all Big 12 as a freshman. There, there you I, have it. There you have I, it. And I, I, I agree with that. I don't think we're going to have this drop off, but I'm just assume. let's just imagine that we win the title this year. How much the real question was, how much does a Big 12 title give you on a leash? Like, do you, are you, no matter what happens? I'm just trying to be more like, how no, I, I agree. I think I think thinking for this K State roster, if we're if we're gonna get K State specific, a Big Twelve title this year can compound this program into way more than what we've had. I won a title this year. Um, mm-hmm. I think one like think of like a Matt Campbell. I feel like Iowa State Matt Campbell is a good resemblance for our program because Campbell didn't even win a title when he won the Fiesta Bowl year. So it would be more than Campbell's ever accomplished. And Climate has then won, had two eight-win seasons a COVID year. And uh, probably like, that would have to be a 10 or 11-win year within probably new, near a six-bowl appearance, whether we win that or not. So anyways, it would be a crazy good year. And so, like you said, we'd have to go like three-win, four-win seasons. And, and like someone else said, we'd have to have mass exodus. So that'd, that'd have to be without Rubley being good, without every Johnson out at all there'd have to be a ton of misses it's just i don't think it's like i think i agree i don't think it's it's going to be a six win maybe five win season next year like i think we're six to seven wins at our valleys and 10 11 wins at our peaks and the occasional you know who knows with the 12 team playoff i expect climbing to get there at some point he sticks around long term i don't think next year with if if we have a big 12 title this year i think climbing can turn that success into more success because how well he hits the transfer portal obviously the recruiting's on an uptick colin klein's bringing a new style of offense and a, a more up tempo contemporary offense. We're gonna get the recruits, and he shows that he can hit the transfer portal. Now imagine telling these kids that he was selling eight wins a season that we can win titles every year. Why not? Because we won it this year. Why not bring in some more transfers that you can impact us into bringing titles? Especially when Oklahoma's down, Texas, fuck them. If if we can, we can sell that and we can be a consistent winner, I think. Yeah. What's interesting about the transfers is we've had a lot of success, but I was thinking our, our before Adrian, our only offensive transfers were tight ends. Like we had no contributors on offense that were transfers outside of our. I think our running backs were pretty good. I mean, James Gilbert was pretty studly. Oh, that first year. Yeah. I was thinking about the last couple of years, but yeah. Yeah. Gilbert and Brown were both both pretty highly touted and, and Gilbert ended up panning out more than, than Brown did. But those were two really good gets knowing that we had zero running backs going into that season. Yeah, that was huge. But I was thinking the last couple of years, it's mainly been defense. Like we've completely rotated safeties, like two years running with transfers, some defensive linemen, some linebackers, um, even though one already transferred out of those players. But, but it, it'd be interesting to see if we can get some wide receiver transfers um, to go with these freshmen that are coming in. Um, because we need some experience at receiver next year, and that will be a huge hole to fill. And we just haven't had any transfer receivers because we haven't really been a 
attractive program probably for the wide receivers so far. I don't know if that's going to change necessarily with the seasons that Malik Knowles and Phillip Brooks is having right now, but I think you can sell the playing time for sure. And maybe you get some future with Rubley and Avery being more, you know, passers. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that for sure. And I think, I think we're going to see this back half of the season. I think Adrian is going to show a little bit more with his arm talent. I think that Iowa state game really showed him that he can lean more on his arm necessarily than just, I mean, he did run it like 18 times, but whatever. I mean, I think he can, I can, I think he could show that he could be more explosive in the passing game. And I think that's going to open up. And I think his offensive passing numbers are going to be a lot higher than what we saw in those first six games. I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a wild ride. He's going to, he's going to pass it through. And Vegas knows something. If they're going to give, if they're going to give him top 10 Heisman odds, they know something is up. I think he's going to get more passing and you're going to see, he's going to obviously have more than 10 rushing touchdowns. If he has in the 15 rushing touchdowns and then he increases that passing touchdowns to, I don't know, 10, 15, that's 25 touchdowns accounted for and getting to close to 1,500 yards passing. I think, I mean, why not? Why not? Matt, Vegas, Vegas knows. Vegas knows all. Well, I think that's going to do it for, for guys talking ball and for Cocaine Willie tonight. So for all of us here, to everybody in the live room, thank you for listening in and contributing. And for everybody on the podcast feed, thank you as well. Next week, we're going to be joined by Philip Slavin from the 1012 Network for our Oklahoma State preview. And we're still working a lineup at Texas Guest, who doesn't share my last name and doesn't live with me uh, and isn't my wife. But we also have Matt is Bear from the Between Two Bears podcast lined up for our Baylor preview. So stay tuned to the feed. Tell your friends to drop by the live show or to check out our recorded episodes the next day. And then give Cocaine Willie a follow on Spotify to be notified when we drop new episodes. And if you are on Twitter, please give us a follow at Cocaine Willie or follow us individually. I'm at Bob Trollsby. Chef is at Chef Andre Napier. And Fireball Matt is at Matt Marchesini. Chef? Cocaine's a hell of a drug, baby. We are all coke and no joke. Wildcat Country... Let's rise. Let's rise. Let's rise.